Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, December the 3rd, 2018. This is episode 2337 of the Survival Podcast. And you know, we got a good one for you today because it's Monday. This is the show that the listeners basically write the script to. Uh, this is Listener Feedback Day. It's where you send me emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, you get those emails over to me with TSPC in the subject line that says, Hey, Jack, pay attention to this. This is for the show. And even if it ends up in the uh, junk mail folder, I end up getting it out of there eventually. And you may hear it on a show like this one if you follow the rules to do that. And uh, the rules to do that are actually pretty simple. Here they are. Uh, one, make sure you put TSPC in the subject line. That's really important. Send an email to jack at the survival podcast. Dot com. Then, bottom line up front, give me a question or a statement, one sentence that sums up your point. Trust me, it can be done. Then, hit enter a couple times and give me all the details you want to give me. And if there's a lot of details, please break them into paragraphs so they're little bite-sized things so that I can scan through there really, really quickly and make a determination of the roughly 300 emails that I'll go through for a show like this just real quick. And I choose the ones, you know, maybe six to eight out of there, the only way I can do that is if you help me, help you, help me, help you. Okay? I think that's right. Yeah. We do that, and uh, I will try to get your content on the air. And I will tell you this. When I see an email from someone on an interesting subject, and they follow the rules, and there's somebody I have not heard from either in a long time or before, I kind of try to give them you know, uh, priority uh, in this mix. I do have some really solid contributors that get, you know send me... 20 really great things a week, and I usually try to use one of theirs because they're like a research assistant. Um, but when I see somebody pop up and I'm like, I don't know that name, or I haven't heard from that person in a long time, and it's something I can talk about, man, I, I, I try to do it. So with that, here's the stuff we've got to talk about today. I got a lot of variety today. I love shows like this when I have variety. Number one, a guy asked me if we could only get one gun for hunting, training, planking. Uh, what would it be? I'll tell you what I would get. I know a lot of people won't agree with me, but I'll tell you why I would do it, especially in this guy's situation. Uh, we have an article on the Me Too movement. Now, I want to talk about why I think the Me Too movement is dangerous, but this is an Unintended Consequences article. There's actually a little uh, audio piece that goes with it. I'll play for you. That way I don't have to read it, and uh, you can read the whole article if you want to. But we get the point real quick here, and, and I'm going to talk about why I think this is really a dangerous thing. Uh, and why it might become a more dangerous thing in more areas over time, and how it also ties in with the fact that everybody's offended about everything, and I'm waiting for the day when people are offended about not being offended. What do you mean by that? I'll tell you. It's when we end up kind of in, like, we're all the Stepford Wives, I guess, and yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, what actually happens if you don't complete a United States Census form? Okay, I'll, I had a question. I'll, I'll answer that one. What can we learn from the Amber Geiger indictment? Who is Amber Geiger? If you don't live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I'm sure this was on international, not international, national news a little bit, but nowhere near to the level that's been covered down here in Dallas. Amber Geiger is a Dallas police officer who went to, who parked in a parking garage for an apartment complex that she lived in. Parked on the wrong floor, like I don't remember exactly. Let's say she lived on the second, she parked on the third. Walked down the hallway to 
a door that she thought was her own door. Um, she was in uniform but off-duty and armed. Uh, saw the door slightly open. At least that's her story. Tried to use her key, which didn't work. Pushed the door open. Saw a dark figure inside there. Started yelling commands at the guy. He did not obey her commands because he was in his own damn apartment and some crazy woman screaming at him from the doorway. Uh, so she shot him, fired twice, hit him once, and killed him. Uh, she has now been indicted on a charge of murder, not manslaughter, which is what was really more or less expected in the beginning. I'll tell you what we can learn from this about these things becoming politicized and an unwillingness for the state to police its own in many instances. Uh, next, I have a question on rebuilding credit. I'll talk about what to do and what not to do. Uh, how about saline in your cocktails, your adult beverages? I made an aside mention of this recently. I think when I was had, had Nicole on or something like that. And um, somebody said, hey, can you say a little bit more about that? What's up with that? It's really simple, and it's a, a great little trick, a little hack uh, when you're making up your concoctions, especially if you're heading into the holidays. And it really does work. I didn't believe it worked. I'll, I'll talk about that just a little bit. It'll be a short segment, a couple minutes. Um, security for a hands-off lock of Muscovy Ducks. You guys got some Muscovy Ducks or had Muscovy Ducks. And they do great till winter. And they get picked off. I'll talk about how you might be able to change that. Um, how about turning the concept we've talked about a bunch lately? Uh, a rehabbed community, city, town, or even a neighborhood into something approaching a Libertyville. A Libertyville. I'll talk about how you might be able to pull that off, but why so many people have had that idea and it just never seems to, to, to work. Uh, next up, the last one I have today is a question on freeze dryers. I'm going to talk a little bit of the standpoint of freeze dryers versus dehydrators. Uh, the economics involved, the good, the bad, and the economics is what we're going to call that segment. And this is something I get a lot of questions about. I'm not a, a large degree of a fan of these home, uh, 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 I'm sorry, freeze dryers. I'm really not. I can want to say dehydrated. I actually like dehydration. I'll give you some of the math behind my thinking here, and then you can make up your own mind. Uh, we'll have all of that and more in just a moment. Before we get to your feedback today on the air, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason with his website, directive21.com. As you might imagine, Jeff the Berkey Guy is going to offer you Berkey water filtration systems. I know that's crazy. The Berkey Guy, Berkey systems. But really, absolutely, Jeff has just been with us a long time, like over seven years, uh, supporting the show and this audience. Uh, he does sell Berkey water filtration systems. He also sells other things for your prepping needs. His website is directive21.com. Uh, I love my Berkey. It's now out in the garage. My wife made me get it out of the pantry. Uh, and to be fair to her, my pantry's not the best laid out thing, and we haven't really figured out how to relay it out. And it was kind of in the way of the, the shop sink that's in the pantry, and it made it hard to use that sink for anything except filling the Berkey up. So she wanted it out of there. I didn't want to give it up, so I have it out in the garage, and we just keep bottles of, of, of filtered water that we bring in. But that tells you how much I love it. I'm willing to set it up in my garage and carry gallons of water back and forth from the garage to the house uh, just so I can continue to have my Berkey. Yeah, I, I love a Berkey. I do. It just makes the water taste better and makes the water you know, guaranteed safe. And Remember my thing on water filtration, guys. This is why I think it's important to have in your house. It's not just that the zombies come and be able to purify water. Um, it's because if you ever hear your government tell you that you should be boiling water, you have a boil water alert, 
Nine times out of ten, you were drinking water that should have been boiled for a significant period of time before they issue the boil water alert. Because they don't generally know there's a problem until people start showing up sick. There's occasions where it's a little bit differently, where they know they've screwed something up and they get out ahead of it. Um, and, and that's good when it happens. But it's probably nine times out of ten, it's the other way around. People start showing up at the ER. Finally, some doc figures out what's going on. And next thing you know, there's a boil water alert until they figure out how to stop it. And you just don't need that to be going on. I'm on a well. Uh, and my water is very, very safe to drink, though it's also very hard and very mineral rich. And it, it, it doesn't taste real good, honestly, even out of a softener until it gets filtered. Um, is a straight water. Um, but even though it's safe right now, there's always a possibility my well could become contaminated. And I won't know uh, until I get sick or if I do random spot testing. And, you know, how long am I drinking something I shouldn't be before I have that spot check done? I can't, can't afford to do it every day, especially for all the things. That are, so water is important. If you're going to get a Berkey system, and I think you should if you're going to do something for your water, it's the most economical long-term solution you can get, um, then you should go to the Berkey guy because he's been supporting us for a long time, and you know he's going to take care of you. That's all it comes down to it. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. We had a bunch of people come here at the workshop last month and build a knife with Patrick Rorman. I bet you'd like to do that, but not everybody can afford the cost to work with somebody like Patrick or the time to come spend you know, a week working with someone like that, but they might want to learn how to make knives. Here's the thing about knife kits. You can get started so cheap, it won't matter if you screw one up. That's the beauty of it to me. You know, you can you have less than 50 bucks into your first shot at a knife, and even if you do screw some stuff up, you're probably going to screw up the handle material. You probably can figure out how to get it off the frame, and you can probably try again, and all you do is buy another set of scales. Um, and even if you screw the whole thing up, if, if you, your second one comes out good, I mean, what is the value in knowing how to build knives? It can turn into a hobby, a side hustle, even a full-time income. And it really does get you into the concept of doing something for yourself, learning how to use basic tools, et cetera, like that. And I really think it's important for America that we get people back into a mindset of doing things for themselves and building a knife. What a great project with a son or a daughter. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Remember, Berkey Guy and Knifekits both do discounts for members of the MSB. All right, with that, let's go ahead and remind you real quick about the MSB. The Member Support Brigade is where you can sign up to help support the work that we do at the Survival Podcast. You go to the survivalpodcast.com. You click on Members, and then you can sign up there. You get a bunch of discounts. It more than pays for your membership, and you're supporting the show at $0.18 cents an episode. And if you subscribe to my email list, you just had a really great discount available to you. <sighs> because I know there's no way you're going to hear this show, sign up for the thing, and then go get on the mail list. I will do something I, didn't, I said I wasn't going to do. I will leave the thing in the daily email one more day. It will be a single little line at the bottom on Tuesday's mail, and it, that, that special is going to go away. So if you're not on my email list, you might want to be to get that discount you got until tomorrow to be on the list when the mail comes out. With that, let's take a look at this day in history. The day in history we're going to go back to not that long ago. Most people listening to the show probably were around. A lot of you, like me, are old enough to know what was going on. 1989. On this day, George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev suggest the Cold War is coming to an end. Meeting off the coast of Malta, President George Bush and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev issue statements strongly suggesting the long-standing animosities at the core of the Cold War might be coming to an end. 
Commentators in both the United States and Russia went further and declared the Cold War was over. Despite the positive spin in rhetoric, though, little of substance was accomplished during the summit. Both sides agreed to work toward a treaty dealing with a long-range nuclear weapons and conventional arms in 1990. Gorbachev and Bush also agreed that another summit would take place in June 1990 in Washington, D.C. Um, and it was the path that eventually got us there. And it was also, I think, the reason the Soviets were willing to deal on this is they were trying to hold their empire together, and they knew it was soon to fall apart. Uh, I don't think anybody else really understood how close that was, but I do believe the people inside the Soviet Union itself knew uh, that they were basically going to go broke and lose control of everything. Um, and, you know, I went into the United States Army at this time and came out in 1993, and the map of the world had changed. It was it was kind of amazing, honestly, a time to live. But I didn't bring this up to even talk about, you know, the end of the Cold War or anything. It just, when I saw that this was something that happened today, it fits in with the fact that President Bush uh, passed away this weekend. And, of course, if you turn on any of the major news networks, about 80% of the content that you hear today will be about George Bush. And, you know, it's the death of the president of the country. So it will be generally positive even on the left-leaning liberal stations. Uh, I think even more so right now due to the contrast between somebody like George Bush the elder and Donald J. Trump. I think it 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 makes it easier for the left to be nice about someone like George Bush. Not really what I wanted to bring it up for either though. Um I wanted to just kind of set an understanding here with why you should live your life on your own terms. George H. W. Bush Uh, was born uh, the son of, of, a, of a very wealthy man, um, Prescott Bush. Um, Bush, later in his life then, uh, knew he would have anything he wanted, and yet he cared about his country enough to serve in the United States Navy as a fighter pilot uh, in World War II in the Pacific Theater. He certainly didn't have to, and yet he did that. Um, and I can say some pretty nasty things about his fa what his father was doing and selling fuel additives to the Nazis, but I'll leave that out uh, while his son was risking his life. One of the most dangerous things you could have done in World War II, by the way. Hey, a fighter pilot in the Pacific, man. Um, he, he later you know, found a career in, in government service. Um, he was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was the uh, ambassador from the United States to the United Nations. Um, of course, what he is most known for is then becoming the vice president under Ronald Reagan, who is arguably the most popular president of modern history, and uh, then becoming a president for a single term himself. Then the legacy of his family is such that one of his sons became the governor of the state of Florida, one of the more prominent positions of government, uh, of being a governor in the country. You know, I would say your big ones are New York, Florida. Texas, California, those are the ones people really look to and go, wow, that's that's a major achievement, not just being, not that being governor of Georgia isn't, but those are ones that generally people nationwide know who are, who are the governors of those states. And the other one I mentioned, of course, was Texas, where George Bush Jr. became the governor of the state of Texas for two terms. And whether you like the guy or not, he was a very successful governor for Texas. He was an extremely successful governor for Texas. He went on to be a president. I don't think he made as good a president as he made a governor. I'll say that honestly. But he did serve as a two-term president. Um, and this is the big lesson in all of this. How many men can you think of 
that I could say that much about in such a short period of time off the top of my head from memory? The answer is not many. The answer is not many. And this week you will hear his name over and over and over again. But what I want you to realize is next week, after his funeral's over, you won't hear his name hardly at all. And you never will again. Now, since he was such a prominent part of American history, you will occasionally hear his name brought up, but it won't be like, oh, George Bush was so awesome. It'll be, oh, that's like when Bush, the elder, blah, 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 you know. Uh, or when, you know, his, his kids get up there in age and, and they get worried more about passing away, you'll hear them talk back about the father. But in general, day-to-day -day conversation, you won't even hear the man's name. Now, why is that important to you? Because that, if that's the case for them, don't you? What do you really think people are going to say about you or think about you after you pass away and die? And the answer is not much. Now your closest family members and all will always remember you and all, but even part of their coping coping mechanism is going to be what? To let it go, to let it come to rest. There'll be days when it comes back, and you would probably wish, hey, just be happy, live your life. I had my time. So what does that mean about living life on your own terms? Since no one's going to really give a shit after you're gone, shouldn't you make the most of what you have here? Those are my thoughts on that. A little bit different for a history segment, but I thought it would be a good opening to today's show. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, your feedback from me um, that you send to my email address again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. First question out of the gate today uh, comes from Thomas. Thomas is Jack. If you could only get one gun for hunting, training, plinking, etc., what would it be and why? Here's my situation. I really am not restricted to getting only one gun, but I am restricted to getting one gun now, and he's got now in all caps. So I need to think really hard about that choice for a first gun, and it may be quite a while before I can afford the investment to get another one. I'm not really worried about home defense, but of course if I had a gun and somebody tried to break in my home, I might use it for that. I really want to get out and learn how to use a gun safely and properly. I would like to, be, you know, I don't know, he basically said, I don't know anything really about guns other than I'd like to become a gun owner. I've heard enough about why I should that I think it's important. And I want to be able to learn how to shoot effectively and eventually probably have more guns. Where do you think I should start and why? I would like to actually try my hand at hunting probably next year because there probably isn't much I can hunt this time of year. I live in Pennsylvania, if that matters. My old stomping grounds, Thomas. It's cool. Uh, so I don't. I would have lots of opportunities: small game, birds, big game, mostly white-tailed deer. But I really don't even know where to start with that. I don't really know anybody that does hunt. What did you? What do you think I should do in my situation? Okay, so. I'm going to say that if I were you, I would probably get a Ruger 10-22 and put a decent scope on it, like I've recommended in the past, which would be like uh, the Redfield 1.5x7 or the Leupold uh, VX. Uh, VX1, I think, is the one I recommend. I'll, I'll look it up, put show note links for you. Uh, but it's about a $200 scope, and you're looking about you know around a $200 gun. Um so that's where I would suggest that you start. You can also probably find, if you, if you go to a gun show, you go to secondhand dealers, etc., you probably can find a used 1022, and, and they damn near last forever, really. I mean, I, I've got one that's got 
tens of thousands of rounds through. It's still accurate. still works perfectly. Um, and, and the reason I, I, I say this is there are a lot of things that you would be able to hunt in Pennsylvania with a shotgun. Shotguns are cheap. You can always get one later. And for what you want to do right now, the light report, almost non-existent recoil, um, and, and now you can get 22 ammo again without like offering a kidney up in exchange for it. It's not as available as it was 20 years ago as far as price and availability, but you can get it. Um, and it's just going to be something that will become a lifelong cherished thing in, in your in your family. Uh, if you teach your kids to shoot as they get older, and I think you should if you have them, etc., and it will allow you to hunt squirrels and rabbits for small game in Pennsylvania. And to me, you have more opportunity to find places to do that than, let's say, hunting pheasants. Um, pheasants by yourself is a difficult prospect, uh, especially without a dog. And I don't, I won't recommend like learning to train a dog, learning all of that at one time. Like get the one skill first. But you probably can find some people with some woodlots, drive around farm country if you're anywhere near farm country, look for tree lines and stuff like that, talk to farmers. They get overrun with people wanting to deer hunt. But generally when you say, look, I'd like to hunt groundhogs in the summer uh, and, and in the fall I'd like to hunt squirrels and rabbits, they're more than happy to let you do that. That lets you cut your teeth on the hunting. As far as you know, learning to shoot well, nothing as far as rifles, is a better training tool than the 1022, uh, and it will do a damn good job of helping you become a solid rifleman. Uh, Appleseed Project uses 1022s extensively in training people to become good riflemen. Um, it is a semi-auto. I don't know how that impacts its use for hunting in, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, I seem to remember with 22s it not being an issue, but there may be a capacity limit, like you can only have five rounds or three rounds or something like to do with shotguns. I'm not sure. If so, you can either block your magazine out, uh, which any game warden will be fine with if you've done that, or buy a lower capacity magazine. I don't know if they make 1022 magazines under 10 rounds, though. Uh, if that's, you know, if that's an issue, you can figure a way around it. And I just think it is the, is the perfect starting place for a new shooter, and especially for an adult new shooter, um, when this gun was developed, what Ruger wanted to do is they wanted to bring out a 22 that adults would take seriously. Up until this point, 22s were pretty shittily made in the United States. They were considered a kid's gun. And remember, you're on there in the 1960s here. This is when a kid, like, well, I need something to do, Grandpa. Here, take this 22 and go get me a rabbit. And they just handed him a box of shells and a, and a rifle and said, go. And and, it, and that's you know that's what the cheap ass twenty twos were used for back then. Those are cheap ass break action shotguns. And and Ruger decided look, we're going to make this gun something that when people see it they're going to respect it. They modeled it on the M1 carbine, which had become very popular with 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 adult shooters uh, from surplus World War II. And they just hit a home run with it. It's something like over five million of these have been sold since Ruger introduced them in the nineteen sixties. My other suggestion would be a 20-gauge shotgun. Uh, a pump action probably would be best for a new shooter. I don't like putting new shooters into semi-auto shotguns. Uh, I'll do it with a rifle, but with shotguns, if you get out in the field, you end up firing three shots behind the bird instead of one ahead of it. It's just ha how it happens. It, it, you blow way too much ammo. Uh, or a 12-gauge. 
but I would renew shooter. I always kind of try to start him in the world of the 20 gauge. You can always step up later. Uh, and the, the advantage of the 20 gauge would be, or even a 12, would be that you can hunt everything in your state. Um, shots on deer in Pennsylvania are generally well under 50 yards. And if you know that you have a distance limitation, you're going to set up your hunting within with that limitation in mind. I have shot a lot of deer in Pennsylvania, and I think the other than one, there was one that I shot at about 100 yards running in the back of the head, which was a hell of a shot. But other than that, um, my longest shot on a deer was with a bow. It's just thick. Nasty stuff those deer move through during that time of year, and you're probably going to have some trouble finding a place to hunt other than state game lands or something like that in your first season. Uh, so I, I'm pushing you toward the 1022, and the reason is you can always go find a shotgun for a couple hundred bucks or less. And so I know you say you can only get one now, but by the time you get to the point of you want to go hunting, if you can't afford a gun, you can't afford to hunt because you're going to need clothing. You're going to have to take your hunter safety education if you haven't ever done that before. Uh, test. You're going to need gear, so the gun is not going to be the most expensive thing you have to worry about at that time. If you have a 1022, you can get the skills that you're looking to develop. And I've always found that a person that becomes a good shot with a rifle becomes very easy to teach to be a good shot with a shotgun. Not necessarily the other way around, though. Intuitively, I would think it would be the other way around. Um, but when we when we learn to shoot a rifle properly, um, we tend to become very good instinctive shotgun shooters because shotgun shooting is instinctive. The thing that I would recommend, though, is as you do your training with your, your new rifle, that you get in the habit of shooting offhand, shooting from different positions, uh, resting against trees, things like that, because that will help you out in the field. Uh, learn all these different positions uh, of supported and unsupported shooting and get very comfortable bringing the rifle up to your line of sight and looking through that scope if you're going to scope your, your gun and not looking into the scope and then trying to find your target. Uh, I have a couple videos out about this that I'll put. Uh, they're very old videos. I probably should redo them. Uh, a lot of people misunderstood them because they're talking about ARs and firefights and shit, and I'm talking about shooting a squirrel in a tree. Um, but... Once you understand how to do that, you will make the transition from rifleman to shotgun shooter very easily. If you don't, you will find it very difficult to become a good shot with a shotgun. Those are my thoughts. And another thing is, in Pennsylvania, they're, they're just eating up and full of things like rod and gun clubs and stuff like that. I recommend reaching out, looking, joining organizations like that, getting to know people. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of the states where there's a, you're incredibly blessed with the amount of access to land and places to hunt that there are. There are tons of places in Pennsylvania that aren't state game lands, that aren't you know posted in any way, shape, or form. But people just hunt there, and no one cares. Finding out where they are, knowing where you can and can't go on that land, etc., that requires kind of being taken into the fold, and I recommend you start looking for a fold to be taken into. With that, let's talk about uh, another one here. A uh, totally different situation. This is about the Me Too movement. And... I've got an article on it here. Uh, this was sent to us by John Amore Park, who is one of those guys that I talk about like a research assistant. But uh, he, he said to the effect of, you know, I, you know, I was waiting, waiting to hear the unintended consequences of this. But instead of reading the very long article, what I want to do is I'll go ahead and pause here for a moment, and I'm going to play the, the audio here uh, that went along with that article and I, from CNN, and I'll come back and, and give you my expanded thoughts on it. 
Let's go to our third story here, which is basically the hashtag MeToo era. If you take into what Vice President Pence is going to do, don't ever feel alone with a woman ever, basically. Don't even have dinner with them. Right. So safe to say this is the number one most read story on yeah. the Bloomberg already and Makes it sense. just uh, popped a couple hours ago. I, I mean, your team worked on it. It's amazing. Yeah, shout out to the reporters Jillian and Katya who worked on it, but it is one of those things. There's a lot of good things that have come from the Me Too issues. It's that, you know, people are being more aware, talking to each other, but one of the potential backlashes or issues on the negative side that this story talks about is whether or not women will be iced out somewhat for some of the things in terms of men potentially being fearful that they might do something wrong or get in trouble and so therefore they're not necessarily opting to have women in meetings maybe if they're having a meeting and it should really be a private meeting they leave the door open things of that nature yeah it's pretty amazing too because if you play this out it leads from potential sexual harassment to ultimately sexual discrimination right. you know if you're sort of going overboard if it's when swinging the, the other swings, way exactly yeah. when it swings too intensely it was a great article so guys check it out so let me tell you, when when this whole Me Too thing started, I, I immediately had the hackles on the back of my neck go, go up and think, this is gonna if this gets traction and it has, uh, is gonna get bad to worse to awful into what it's really gonna be. Um, I do not support men being abusive to women in any way, uh, whether it's through sexual harassment whether it's actual sexual, forced sexual behavior that doesn't go all the way to the level of rape, but things like copying a feeling, all of that I find reprehensible. Nothing I'm about to say is in any way a defense of men behaving that way. I have never behaved that way with a woman. I never would. Uh, happily married man, you know, been with my wife, not as, as as married. We're coming up on our 20 year marriage anniversary, but we've been well, together well over 20 years and, you know, completely faithful to each other so for a lot of things like this doesn't even really apply to me and, and really didn't going through my professional career and things like that in, in, in ways that I mean like this if I was a single man there were women that I worked with that if I thought they were interested in me I might have you know asked them if they were and suggested that maybe we went out with each other because that's a great way to meet people through work and when you start getting into the situation, you get into the point where women start to feel like any unwanted anything is sexual harassment. In other words, if I said, you look good today, and you thought I was an attractive guy and like that, that's fine. But if I said that to you and you don't like me, you find that to be an improper sexual advance because I said you look good today. And God help me if I actually asked you if you'd be interested in going out. Um, because the answer to that is either yes, I would, or no, I wouldn't. And I think the point that we cross the bridge to where it becomes truly an un unwanted advance is when the person makes the inquiry and the response is negative, and then they don't go away and leave that person alone. Now I think you start to move into at least harassment. But we've gotten to a point now where people are afraid to even do that, and, and not only they're not afraid just to do that, they're afraid to have a meeting with a woman alone, even when the meeting really is a two-person meeting. Like, let's say I'm your supervisor and I'm doing your annual employee review, and you're a female. I am right to be concerned about being alone with you in that situation. You know, if nothing else, at least we hope that there's a conference room with glass walls where people can see inside. 
But still you could say I said something or claimed something. And the problem here, and this is what I hate about me too, you've made a victim club. You've made a victim club. And people like to be in clubs. Now, I want you to understand that everything I'm going to say about women going forward applies to men. If I say women lie, I am not saying women lie and men don't. I'm saying women lie because they're people and everybody lies in the words of Dr. House. Okay? Everybody lies. And when people are in certain situations, they will lie to different degrees. Women can become very vindictive in a situation and will use whatever's available to them as a weapon. Men will too, but women can use this weapon. Men really can't. Men really can't get away with saying they were sexually harassed by a woman. It does happen, but men are considered weak when they bring it up and most, most of the time anyway are not taken seriously. And there are a, there's a segment of people in society that want to be part of something, anything. There are segments of people in society that see themselves as victims. They, and you know that's the case. And when you create it like a cool kids club, where people can say, I'm part of this thing, they will lie about things to be accepted into that group. And this whole concept that we should always believe the woman is nonsense. We should believe the facts that are available in a situation. Because I don't want to live in a society where a man's reputation and life can be destroyed with an, ap an accusation absent evidence. And then the people that are the extreme versions of this group, both the ones that are wannabe victims and the ones that are actual victims, will then take things to further extremes and use words that don't make sense. When the Kavanaugh hearings were going on, There were women who wrote letters that said, I went to the same types of schools, the same areas, etc., of you know where this, where this girl went, and we're survivors too. We're survivors. If somebody wasn't trying to kill you, you're not a survivor. You might be a victim. But when you start saying words like survivors, then I'm looking for somebody that's dead because of what you're talking about. And being hit on at a party... Or doing something with a guy you really didn't want to do, but you did it because your inhibitions were down when you were drunk and then changed your mind, doesn't make you a survivor. Being in a situation where you actually were taken advantage of in some way makes you a victim. When you start using words like survivor, I'm looking for something that was a threat to your survival. And we start to get these extremes. And what ends up happening is exactly what you're seeing happen here. Men want no part of this. There's already a movement known as men going their own way. And you can see why men are attracted to it. I get to keep all my money. I'm not going to have any kids. I'm not going to be put on for child support. No one's going to take half my shit 20 years down the road. I can do whatever the hell I want. And there's a lot of men attracted to that. This only makes that more likely to be the case. Because why am I going to get myself into some sort of entanglement here? And it's bad for women. And it's bad for women because of this type of odd, contrived discrimination. It is a discrimination against women. But it's a justifiable discrimination because I don't want to be accused of some shit. And I know I can be. And I know that we'll hear the cry of believe the woman. Right up until it's somebody that my group doesn't want to believe. Right? And it's just a flipping mess, but it all hinges on this concept of creating a club. 
that people want to be part of and people that have this emotional dependency and they need to be a victim. I know people in my life, not about this particular way of being a victim, but I know people, one particular person that's in my family, who her entire identity is that of a victim, and the worst thing you can do to get on her bad side is to show her in any situation where she's not really a victim. Because that this individual in particular feels like if you point that out, you're attacking their actual identity as a human being. And when you have people with that mentality, and you have a nation of 300 million people, There are going to be some that want to be part of that club so bad they will fabricate, they will exaggerate, etc. And that does, and then where it really hurts, you will get to a point where enough of this is exposed that instead of believe the woman, the initial concept will be doubt the woman. And women who really have been abused will have a harder time and be less likely to come forward, which is supposed to be the exact opposite of what's going on here. And I'm going to tell you it happens. I shared a video on Facebook a couple months ago. It was a woman screaming at a man, beating herself in the face, smashing herself in the face with her hands and objects, and flipping out on the guy. The guy just standing there like, I don't know what to do. And she beat the hell out of herself. She also then called the police. And she told the police that he beat her up. He was, in fact, arrested. Fortunately for him, and unfortunately for her... She was not aware of the fact that he had video surveillance in his home. And the first thing he did with, with it contacting his lawyer was to tell his lawyer how to get a hold of that footage. And that lawyer provided the footage to the judge when he requested this guy be released, not, not on his own reconnaissance, but uncharged. And the guy was. Now, this is conclusive proof that this woman claimed to be abused and abused herself. This is the scary thing. There is a high probability this man would have been convicted of abusing this woman and would have even entered a plea deal to get the charge lower had he not had that video evidence. Why? We believe the woman. And what evidence would you have in this situation? You have two stories and a battered woman. What evidence do you have that she did this to herself? And you can't take the propensity for things like this to happen. And I... I, I don't care if it's if it's five percent of the situations. You can't create a cool kids club and not think that that's not going to go up. This is dangerous. This is highly and it's part of a bigger problem in society where everybody is hypersensitive to everything and everybody's offended by everything. And I think we're heading to a day when you will see an article that's not on the Onion or Babylon B, and it will say something like, "People are now offended." by not being offended. And what I mean is we will so sanitize society that these people that are out looking for something to be offended about will be upset that they can't find anything to be offended about anymore because we have so sanitized society. We're, I mean, there. I just read an article, and again, it wasn't Babylon B. Social justice warriors are upset about freaking Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special. I don't even know why, because I don't effing care. I can't give a shit when you go that far. You're offended by 60-year-old claymation. You are an idiot. You are an idiot, and no one should be listening to you, and if no one did, I wouldn't care. But people are making decisions about content on networks, televisions, and radio stations now because of the opinions of these idiots. 
the 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 the, the song. It's not even a Christmas song. It just kind of became one because it, it kind of fit the idea. Baby, it's cold outside. It's now considered by social justice warriors to be an anthem to rape because they cannot even comprehend the concept of seduction anymore. They don't know anything about the song. And they say, this is where you know we're moving into dangerous territory. It might have been okay then, but it's not okay now. What? What? That is the most idiotic statement on the planet. That means that I want things changed because my perception is different. Because it's not like the song was actually about rape, and rape was considered okay in the 1940s when the freaking song was written. No, it's because you've decided that it means something that it never did. And our society has lost its mind. It's absolutely lost its mind. And I, I, I refuse to be party to this stuff anymore. That's why when I see it, I won't even read it anymore. I'll just, oh, I'll just take note. Okay, now they're upset about this song. Now they're upset about claymation. They're upset about claymation from the 1960s about a freaking fake reindeer that saves Christmas. These people have lost their minds. And if you don't think that it's tied in with things like Me Too then you don't understand the actual sickness that's going on here. I feel like it's some kind of weird twilight zone where people you know, used to lose and still do lose their minds in their 90s and their 80s and stuff. They go into, you get Alzheimer's and dementia and stuff. And instead now people are, are having psychosis and mental problems in their 20s. Because if you're offended by a freaking claymation reindeer, if you think a song that's about a woman justifying her choice to remain with a man even though society doesn't think she should actually fighting the patriarchy that you're so concerned about is a song about rape your mind is not working properly it's just not and there are radio stations who have now removed that song from their Christmas playlists not because it's not a Christmas song which it isn't but because it's supposedly an anthem to rape it was in the it was in the movie elf For God's sakes, it was in the movie Elf. It's one of the most kid-friendly movies ever made. One of the few actually original ideas and creative ideas for a Christmas movie to happen. You know, and movies been made the last 30 years. And you're now calling it a rape anthem. What's in this drink means that they're putting a roofie in the drink. We didn't have Rehypnol when the song came out. It was written by a husband and wife who played it for their friends at, at house parties. I, I, duh. And again, we're making this scalable. We're making offense scalable and distributable. And people are actually buying into it. And that's a big problem. And then you're going to hear the concept. Well, we can't have this now in the Me Too era. Now it's a Me Too era. Why? Because the TV decided it was an era. And it's time for common sense to prevail. And unfortunately... It ain't looking good for common sense. Common sense is working out about as uh, about as good as my Steelers are in the last couple of weeks. Not good at all. All right, so let's move on to something different before I completely blow my effing gasket today. This one comes from Clint. Clint says, I recently received a U.S. Census survey that I must complete and return or be subject to penalties. What's a law-abiding anarchist to do? Details. 
I have received these in the past and didn't respond to the last one. I think I might have even gotten the last a visit last time, which I declined to comment. It's my understanding that according to the Constitution, I am legally bound to give them a number of people living at my residence and nothing more. However, it appears to be up for debate. It also appears that you, you that they have not penalized anyone for failure since the 60s and 70s, but it doesn't mean they won't decide to. I have better things to do than waste my time and money fighting this, only to lose in the end. What do you think? Thanks, Clint. Well, what's going to happen if you don't fill out your census form uh, and just don't do it? And if somebody comes to your door and you don't know who they are, you don't answer it, or you live in a place like mine where they can't get to your door, um, eventually uh, they will talk to your neighbors if your neighbors will talk to them, and they will fill it out for you with their best guess about who you are. Um, the people, yes, you're right. I couldn't find anything until the 60s and back until the 60s and 70s of anybody being prosecuted. I found one successfully prosecuted in the 60s, and then one in the 70s that actually beat it. Um, But they were instances where the person was defiant. I will not. I'm, a, I'm protesting. They, they made a, a, a deal out of it. And in most things like this, the person that gets hammered is the one that looks like a nail screaming, I dare you to hammer me. So if you really don't want to do it, you can just throw it away. Hey, I didn't get it, whatever. But if somebody shows up at your door and you decline, they may or may not try to get something done out of it, but the government has way more important things to do than this. Um, the one that was successfully prosecuted, you know, I found from the 60s, answered the basic questions and declined the expanded questions. And they were able, for some reason, to go after this person and, and, and get somewhere with it. Um, this is the other side of it. If you just don't want to deal with the problems that could possibly come out, fill the damn thing out. It's not like it's actually a horrible thing. Uh, but as an anarchist, I am opposed to a lot of what's done with it. They use it to make decisions about how money is spent, uh, which is stolen money. So you're asking me to contribute to something that I find to be immoral and reprehensible, stealing people's property and redistributing it. The other side of that, though, is it's one of those things where they're going to do that anyway. And, and the main thing done with the census is to determine, you know, like, How many people live here? So how do we allocate this and that? And how do we allocate things like, you know, House of Representatives uh, per state? It's based on population and, and what have you. Um, I do find it to be an intrusion into, um, into our homes and into our personal lives. I do not find that the Constitution actually gives the government, well, I wouldn't say it doesn't give the government the authority. I would say it doesn't mandate the individual response. It gives the government the authority to ask. And it says these are the, and it does specifically say this is what the government shall do. It doesn't mandate in any way a penalty for failure to comply. It really doesn't. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't find a place where it does. So it gives the government the authority to ask. And then, of course, the government has the ability to to go after people in various ways, and they, they, there is a law in Congress that gives them this authority. So they do have the constitutional authority, because even if the Constitution only says they should do this much, the Constitution also gives Congress power to pass laws. They pass the law stating that you must, and then that law is constitutional, even if an invasion of our privacy. So this is one of those things I don't get worked up about. If I get one, I throw it away, because I just don't want to. Um, I have never had anybody actually successfully get to my door to talk to me about it. 
Um, we did fill out one a few years ago because Dorothy got it and just filled it out because she thought she had to. Uh, generally, again, I throw them away. Um, I, what I've seen is the major compelling reason uh, for you're supposed to do it is because you love government and you want your government to try to do the best to help you. Um, and that if you don't do it, you're being selfish and government services will not get to those who need them because you won't be counted in the rolls. I find this to be preposterous. Um, I don't find this to be a place to, to, to draw my sword and fight a battle, though. Um, if, I, if I got to a position where they were threatening me, I probably would just do it. Uh, I, it's just not worth it. I don't think that um, it's, it's really like one of the more nefarious things that governments do. I do have an ethical problem with it, and I do have an ability to resist with very little risk to myself, so then I feel a moral a moral responsibility to do so. I guess if, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, next up, Dallas police officer who shot a man in his own apartment was indicted on murder, murder charges recently. Uh, this is an audio from CNN about that particular uh, situation. For those that may not be familiar with it, I'll go ahead and play this for you so you can understand what happened. I'll come back to you with a couple thoughts on this. The Dallas County Grand Jury has returned an indictment against Amber Geiger for the offense of murder. The Dallas police officer was in uniform, but off duty last September when she shot and killed 26-year-old Botham John, who was unarmed, inside his apartment. Amber Geiger was arrested and charged with manslaughter. She told investigators she mistakenly entered the wrong apartment and thought there was a burglar inside her home. We prepared this case to the grand jury. We talked to over 300 witnesses. And we did all kind of lab testing in preparation to present a case to the grand jury. The Dallas County District Attorney explained why the grand jury decided to charge Geiger with murder over manslaughter, saying murder constitutes someone intentionally and knowingly committing a crime, whereas manslaughter involves recklessly doing something. We're not contending what, she, what may have happened, what was in her mind before. Only thing we're saying is that at the moment of this shooting, it was an intentional and knowing offense. In an emotional press conference Friday, Jean's mother said she was satisfied with the grand jury's decision. Because I truly believe that she inflicted tremendous evil on my son. He didn't deserve it. He was seated in his own apartment. He felt safe in that apartment. And he was violated by her coming in and murdering him. Geiger's attorney was disappointed, but not surprised by the murder indictment, given what he called an outpouring of vindictive emotion in a statement late Friday. This is a terrible tragedy that resulted from a true mistake, he said. We are confident that a dispassionate jury in a fair forum will objectively apply the law to the facts and find Amber not guilty. I look forward to the next step, which is a conviction of murder of Amber Geiger, and more so of a penalty, the proper penalty that will cause her to reflect on what she has done and the pain that she has caused. CNN was granted access to tour Jean's apartment shortly after the shooting. In the chilling video, you see a bullet hole in the wall, indicated by an evidence marking, laundry piled on the couch, and Botham's half-eaten bowl of cereal with milk still in it. Now two months after the shooting, 
there are still more questions than answers as the case moves to the courthouse. This is uh, groundbreaking, uh, but it is also just a start. A charge of murder carries a sentence of up to life in prison. And John's parents filed a separate lawsuit in federal court against Geiger in the city last month, alleging Geiger used excessive force. Kaylee Hartung, CNN. So let's talk about this from a, a pure legal situation standpoint. And why I don't think that you're likely to see a murder conviction in this situation. And the prosecution being happy to go for the murder conviction and probably already figuring out they're probably likely going to end up with a manslaughter conviction here. Doing something recklessly that causes a death is, is, is the, the layman's version of manslaughter. They're right the way they describe that there. And that means that had you not done the stupid thing that you did, that person wouldn't be here, and therefore you're responsible for their death. And that negligence is attributable to the death, and then to what degree that is, and what are the, the mitigating and aggravating circumstances will have a lot to do with sentencing. What happened here is a woman went to a man's apartment that wasn't hers, entered his apartment, started telling him what to do. He didn't do it because it probably didn't make any sense to him while this was going on, and shot him. Her claim is that she parked in the parking garage, ended up on the wrong floor in the parking garage, you know, probably in autopilot mold looking down at her, you know, phone or something like people do all the time, because just because you're a cop doesn't mean you have good situational awareness. Walked to her door, all the floors are pretty much the same, doors are the same spacing out, noticed the door open, because she noticed the door slightly open, She didn't necessarily pay attention to the number on the door because that brought her attention and then tried to use her key. Now, I don't understand. See, I have a problem with her story, and this is you can be, this will be picked apart in court. Why would you try to use your key if the door was slightly open? And maybe the door wasn't slightly open and somehow she got into the apartment when she wasn't supposed to. I don't know. I wasn't there, and I don't know. But the reality is only two people were there. One's dead, so there's only one story. And unless you can find physical evidence to the contrary of her story, her story is likely to be mostly believed by a jury. So to prove murder, you have to prove, because what the, what the prosecutor said there was she knew at the point that she intended to kill him so it was murder. Okay? That can be the case and you can still have a manslaughter conviction if at that point she also still believed it was her apartment. This, that's that's going to be the point that has to be argued here in court. That at this point, somewhere before pulling the trigger, she knew that she wasn't in her apartment, she was in his. And then made the decision to shoot him anyway for whatever reason she did that. That may very well be true. How are you going to prove it? Assuming she doesn't crack under examination or something like that, how are you going to prove it? On top of this, the defense will do the standard female officer-involved shooting defense strategy. And I have heard from many cops that say this is why women, often in situations where they should not have shot, get away with it. They will make her look as small and helpless as possible. They will coach her on how to answer questions, and they will make her look like a victim in this, even though she killed a person. 
You couple those two things together, and I don't think you're going to get a murder conviction here. This is not my opinion of what should or should not happen, because I am one of those honest people. I don't have all the facts. I don't know. What I do know, this woman does not have a history of abuse reports or anything like that. She's not had a, a large amount of discipline or anything like that from the department. She doesn't have any kind of you know prior criminal activity uh, or anything like that. She doesn't have a hit. She's never shot anybody else. It's very difficult to show a pattern of behavior here in any way as to why she would do this intentionally. And I think I put you back to manslaughter. Here's the political side of this. By going for a murder conviction, the prosecutor can appeal to the people of her district that she did the right thing. There is a, the one thing the defense attorney is right about here, a, a political and, and, and outrage, a violent outrage within the community. But you can understand why people feel vindictive. A man sitting in his own house eating a bowl of cereal is shot by a cop because he didn't do what she told him to do in his own house and she had no business being in. But if you put somebody on a jury and they realize somebody's life really is at stake and you set the scenario of why would she have done this intentionally, it's a pretty solid defense in the situation in a jury trial. I know I'm going to hear from some of you who morally outraged that I could think this way, that this cop should go to prison for the rest of her life or whatever. I... I'm not in that business of deciding whether or not somebody should go to prison for the rest of their life. Especially in a situation like this where I do not have all the facts. A jury's going to do that. Again, it's like being a weatherman telling you it's going to rain Monday. doesn't mean I want it to. It just means that it is. Telling you there's going to be an outbreak of tornadoes in this given area doesn't mean you want your house blown down by a tornado. He's just telling you, hey, this is what's... When I look at the setup here, I see most likely a manslaughter conviction. Now, you may ask... If they're prosecuting for murder, how you can end up with a manslaughter conviction, you can have a reduction in charge and still have a guilty verdict. I think it's a high probability of a guilty verdict because if the prosecution feels at any time they're losing, and they will, they'll make that case. That it, well, it has to have at least risen to this. We already know, and that's what they'll make the case. We know it's minimum manslaughter. Here's why we think it's murder. And that way they get to pander to the local community and to the activists and to everybody else, but they're saving an actual kind of, you know, probably a slam dunk conviction. Don't be surprised also if she gets away with this. A jury may look at her and she'll play the part she's coached to play well and say, my God, is this small, frail woman trained? To deal with a situation just like this, what if what if you came home and somebody was in your house and you were telling them, you know, get down or whatever, and they weren't doing what you said, and it was dark, and you didn't know what was going on, and you thought they broke into your home? Would it be reasonable that you might shoot them? Of course. See? And those are going to be words that are going to come right out of her attorney's mouth. He's going to go to the extreme to try to get his, his client not convicted of anything. And the prosecution is playing a political game. And what we learn by this is not all situations are handled the same by the state, which is the only reason supposedly we have a state to handle these situations. Everybody's treated fair. Everybody's treated equally. That's not what's going on here. This is highly politically charged.
And this is a prosecutor trying to make points for political reasons. Because the smart attempt at a conviction here is a manslaughter conviction. Now, you might say, then, well, how'd she get the indictment? In general, not always, but in general, prosecutors can get an indictment for anything that they want from a grand jury. Because a grand jury's threshold is far different than a jury threshold. What a grand jury says is there enough here that it makes sense that a case can be made for this thing in court. Not is it probable that the conviction will result. Is it reasonable that this could, like, is there enough here that I feel morally that it would be acceptable for the state to try to prove this case in a court of law with a jury? Yes. It's a pretty slim threshold. They knew what they were doing. Justice is not blind in our country, guys. It has a lot to do with so many things. I could bring up countless examples of it. This is just one that happens to be going on right now. And if you think this woman getting away with this, scot-free, isn't possible, uh, I'd like to remind you of the Oklahoma State Police Officer, I think his first name was Carol, I can't remember her first name, uh, but Selby was her last name. She shot an unarmed black man with his hands up on a vehicle. It said he tried to reach inside the vehicle. Freaking window was closed on the vehicle. She killed this unarmed man. Standing there, on video. You can see it happen. Guess what? They tried her with manslaughter. She was acquitted. I really believe that it had been a male officer that had taken that shot that he would have been convicted. And, you, you know, I know everybody wants all equal rights and everything, supposedly, but juries are made of people. People are subject to emotion, and lawyers play to emotion. And that's the exact scenario that I've had multiple officers tell me happens in these situations. They make the woman look small, frail, and weak. They make her look like a victim, and they pull those emotions. And you don't have to win over everybody to win in a jury trial as a defense. The, the, the prosecution has the greater burden of proof than the defense does. And you can use emotion to steer that last little bit, and it happens all the time. Um, nothing we can do about it right now, so let's talk about something else. This one actually came in for John Pugliano, but I think this is an easy enough one. I'm going to take it. Uh, it says, fixing bad credit with a credit card. So my wife has awful credit due to the face, uh, the fact that she consigned on a furniture purchase for an ex of hers, and he didn't pay it. This is more than 15 years ago because my credit is so good we've just used mine. However, I'd like to get her credit fixed if something were to happen to me so she would have good credit if she needed to take care of herself and her son. She's in a business in her name, uh, DBA, for more than 10 years, and she has a business account which has offered her a credit card. She also gets numerous officer personal cards. Would it be good to get the credit card from the bank or a personal one or both? Thanks in advance, Dave. Uh, well, Dave, first of all, her credit probably isn't that bad. If, if you have something unpaid from 15 years ago and you don't have anything else, the reason your credit has got a low score at this point is because you hadn't been doing anything on credit, not because of that incident. 15 years is forever and a day ago in the world of debt. Uh, that's been written off, charged off, disposed of long ago. Um, in any place that she was applying for credit for anything, assuming it's a good place to be doing it, a good reason to be doing it, um, the most she would probably have to do to get approved for just about anything that she would be approved for otherwise is provide a letter stating what you said. This was something I, I co-signed for on my husband. It was 15 years ago. I could not afford to pay for it back then. 
Um, eventually it was discharged as, as unpaid debt, and it's gone now, and there's nothing I can do about it. I've paid all my other bills, blah, 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 blah. Um, as far as using credit cards to build your credit, it does work. It will make the number go up. If you are getting a credit card for your business, um, in this case a DBA, it probably actually still is a personal credit card. It probably still actually is a personal credit card. Um, and because the business itself doesn't have any credit, it's not really an entity, it's just a representation of you. Because uh, it's not a corporation. Does that make sense? I, I hope it does. Either way, this is what I would say. I don't like this idea because it generally is like people saying, well, I've never had a grass snake before, but I think I'll get a rattlesnake and see how I like keeping snakes. Um, so you have to go into it. If you insisted on doing that, then I would tell you, here's how to handle a rattlesnake so that you never get bit. In, in that case, we are never going to touch it with our hands. We're going to use hooks and bags and, 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 and clamps to, to move it around. We're going to use hooks and clamps to open the cage and to move the snake and to clean the cage. And we will never be at a statement, a, a point where our hand is close enough to the snake or any part of our body that can be bit is close enough to the snake for the snake to actually bite us. And as long as we'll do all those things, we're not going to get bit. And as long as you actually do it, you're not going to get bit. But sooner or later, people tend to get lazy and make mistakes and get bit. That's why it's not probably a good idea for untrained people to keep venomous reptiles. It's kind of like the way you look at credit cards. So here's what I would say. If you're going to do it for this purpose, then you should pick expenses that have to be paid every month anyway, that can be paid with a credit card. They should be paid with a credit card. You should set up automatic bill paying for your credit card from your bank account online. And the minute the charge is made, you should be making a payment on the credit card for the amount of the charge. If you're going to do anything other than that, do not do it. There are also other ways that you can help build credit. If you're going to buy or rent a car, buy or lease a car, go ahead and try to get it in her name. And then if you're going to pay a really high interest rate because if she's lacking credit, see what happens when you move her to the status of cosigner. And you're the primary. That will help build her credit. And then the next, next time around, go ahead and put her as the primary again. And until you're paying a lot more for it, go ahead and do that. Because what makes credit scores go up is, is, is servicing debt. That's what makes credit scores going up. Because that means that you have a history of paying your bills to people who can report you for not paying them. So is it a good idea? I understand what you're saying here. Like, let's say you die and she needs to buy a new house. Um, she's probably going to be able to anyway. But I get what you're saying. I'm okay with it. And you might as well find a credit card that does something like cash back or gives you miles or something. Um, though I don't like that as justification for a credit card. If you're going to do it anyway, why not get it? You know, I get 1% cash back on my PayPal debit card whenever I use it as a credit card. So whenever I pay something for it, I pay for it as a credit card. I get 1%. It doesn't change my life a great deal, but it's free money. So those are my thoughts on it. I don't think it really needs to be any more involved than that. Um, again, I doubt that you're going to be able to get a business credit card that she's not actually securing the, the, the credit for as an individual with a DBA uh, business. It will just have her, her business name on it, um, but it will be under her as a, a creditor, okay? Um, or a debtor, actually. Uh, so it will be reported to the credit agencies as her, as though it was individual anyway. The business one makes a lot of sense. Um, 
because it keeps everything in a very recorded way for tax purposes and stuff like that. You can kind of justify it some ways like that, but again, it has to be looked at as I just paid the bill with a check. It, it can't be looked at as well. That means I don't have to pay the bill till the end of the month. You need it, 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 it at most. Then you know you have a bank account that you move money into that only exists for paying bills. And every time you and then you pay it once a month. If you want to do that too, that that that's fine as well. Uh, next up, question comes in from Jason. Jason says, "Can you please talk about saline for adult beverages? Are we talking 0.9 percent NaCl or something else?" I was listening to your interview with Nicole Saucy. You did this summer. She mentioned that David had put her on using saline with her bourbon, and this piqued my interest. Thanks, Jason. I'm going to play audio from a video that I have linked in the show notes that tells you exactly how to mix saline, the ratios to do this with. And if you have a little home kitchen scale, you can do it with that. Here you go. It's long been understood by chefs and bakers that using just a pinch of salt has been an effective way to temper bitter flavors while enhancing sweet and citrus. Now bartenders are starting to realize that salt will enhance not just food ingredients but liquid ones as well. Adding salt to the cocktail is as simple as just adding a pinch. I actually prefer to make a saline solution because often my hands are a bit wet and it's just easier. So here we're going to make a 20% saline solution. So I'm measuring out 20 grams of salt, and to that we're going to add. 80 milliliters of water, which is the same as 80 grams. Then just shake up the solution until it is clear. Of the five major tastes, salt is overwhelmingly the most popular. It's necessary for human survival, so it's only natural we'd crave it in both food and drink. Therefore, food scientists have discovered the majority of consumables can be improved by the addition of salt. Any cocktail that includes fruit. Chocolate or coffee benefits from a bit of salt. I typically use two drops of this saline solution in my sour cocktails. Once combined, I transfer the saline solution to a dropper like this. For a simple experiment, just add one drop of that saline solution to a shot glass of Campari and compare it against a similar amount、uh, without the salt. You'll notice that the sweet is enhanced and the bitterness muted in the version with the salt. So try a pinch of salt in your next sour cocktail. Let me know how it goes. Cheers. For all of my cocktail recipes, links to the equipment I use, and early access to videos, visit cocktailchemistrylab.com. So where this all started for me and ended up getting to Nicole, and as far as David mentioned, David's a good friend of mine. Those of you that don't know him,、uh, he is instrumental to helping me pull off my workshops and all now. Um, he's just a great dude. He was actually here Saturday night. We sat outside at the fire pit and had a martini together, and, and just had a good time talking with him.、Uh, one of those friends that you have that your wife likes as much as you do. It's really great. And because of that, we do stuff together. Myself,、uh, him, my wife, and his wife. And this last summer,、uh, we got an opportunity to pick up tickets and go to a thing at a restaurant called Riata here. And it was like a Riata reunion where all of these chefs. And Riata is a pretty, pretty upscale, pretty indulgent, pretty wonderful place. It's one of those places that I'll take someone to when they come here out of town if I want to spoil them. Not quite as much as Lonesome Dove is, but it's up there. Lonesome Dove's run by a, che- a chef named Tim Love. Tim Love came through Riata, so and Tim Love's 
you know, if you watch Cooking Channel or whatever, you've probably seen him, kind of a celebrity chef. He and some other celebrity chefs and some other chefs that are just in really high-end restaurants in the Dallas area all came through Riata. So they all came back to Riata for this big multi-course meal. David and his wife Mona and I and Dorothy all went there. We had a great time. They had cocktails at the very beginning of it, and they had this blackberry smoked black pepper cocktail. And so, well, yeah, we'll try that. We watched the bartender uh, make it, and she pulls out this little eyedropper and puts two little tiny drops of of something into these drinks. And we drank. It was a great drink. It really was. Um, but, I mean, David and I looked at each other and were like, bullshit. Come on, this is, you know, there's a lot of things bartenders do that actually in, improve a drink. And there's some things that are just, they're psychological, they look cool, you know, things like that. Uh, that don't really have much of an impact on the drink itself. So we're like, bullshit. So we go home and we both try it. And when you actually have something to compare it to, it really does work. And it's kind of what they're hitting on there in that video. They'll play the audio for you on. When you add salt to something, even to the point where you can't taste the salt and say there's salt in there, it enhances and brings out the other flavors. And this is why, you know, you make bread, you put a pinch of salt in bread, and it just works. Now, I think it works better with saline than just, like, dropping a pinch of salt in there, because most of our drinks, when we mix them, they're very cold, and we're not going to get a good amount of dissolved salt, and it won't spread through the drink quite right. Um, and oddly enough, when you do this, the best way to do it is you have the drink done, And it's finished, and it's in its glass, and then you drop a couple drips of the stuff in there. Not put it in before you run it through the shaker or the stir or whatever. And I don't know if that's because it kind of is sitting up on the top. It's kind of like one of David's martini tricks is when you do a dirty martini with the olive juice, right at the end, after it's been shaken, you put it in the glass, you hit it with a little shot of the brine at the top of the martini, and that way it hits you in the nose and you get the salt, right? Um, so this works. It's really good in bourbon drinks. It's really good in most drinks. I don't think that it will do as much for you in your sweeter, fruitier, you know, type things. Uh, but the stuff where the the sweetness and the fruit flavors and the nuances are subtle, it brings them out. And you can you can show yourself this. You know, get get a couple rocks glasses, throw one big ice cube in each one, take your favorite adult liqueur. Uh, you know, whiskey or bourbon or something like that, something serious, not vodka. Vodka's pretty neutral in taste, it's all point. Just pour a little bit in each glass and hit one drop of that in each, or one drop in one glass and not in the other, and taste it side by side. And it's it's kind of a cool little life hack and thing you can do, and it's easy, and you just mix up some of the salt water, basically, and, and use it in your drinks. Next from Kent, we have, hey, Jack, I got a question about providing security for my scubby ducks. Uh, particularly in the dark, cold wintertime. Details. I've raised a few muscovies in the past, but eventually lost them to all predators. Most of the losses happened when my three-acre lake, where I basically let them live to provide for themselves, would freeze over. Then their limited flying abilities and no water to paddle away left them vulnerable. I would love the meat they provide and the hands-free way they do so, but I feel like I'm going to have to invite them back onto my property again. I'm obligated to provide them some type of security, especially during the dark, cold nights of winter. 
I live in Zone 5 of Illinois, so sometimes my lake will freeze salt for weeks at a time. I do have chickens and could put them in with them during the winter, I suppose, but I have found that that really messes up the desire for them to take care of themselves when released back into the wild. They become pikers, basically. They also eat voraciously and just basically messy slobs in the coop. Any suggestions you have would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do for so many of us. Kent, Kent, uh, number one, if you do decide to put them in the coop, the most important thing to do is not provide them water in the coop. Ducks and water inside a coop do not go together. They can get their water before they go in, and when they come out, you can put feed in there with them, um, but water and ducks in a coop don't go together well. Muscovies are actually way better about it than all the mallard breed ducks, rowans and khaki camels and all that other stuff. They're the least disgusting duck when it comes to how they treat their water, but they're still a duck. Um, so you either do that, and that's the thing about that is that's foolproof. If you have a locked-up coop, And your birds are inside there. Foxes and, and you know coyotes and stuff aren't going to get them. So that's why I like that approach. Your other approach is build them and enclose your area. Build, and you put some lean-tos in there, you know, you know, stuff like that for them to get some shelter, and feed them there. Feed them there and have a gate. And they'll be trained. At night, they'll come. They'll come right on in there. And then put um, a fence charger on that, put a hot wire across the bottom and the top of that fence, and that way anything that comes to try to harm them will get sapped. This requires additional maintenance um, because you know one little bit of weed up on that hot wire, you can short it out and the fence won't work and the animals can get over it. You can't let any kind of trees or anything get growing too close to your enclosure I had that happen, and I had a fox that was climbing the tree and jumping over the fence and still getting the birds. Uh, they do work things like that out over time. So that's that's the only other thing that I know for you to do. As far as their limited flight abilities, I, I, I think you just have lazy ducks because muscovies can fly. I mean, I've seen muscovies take off from here when we used to keep them and fly like to where I almost couldn't see them and come back around and, and circle the property multiple times. Uh, the males will only fly, though, typically either just for something to do every once in a while to stretch their wings, but they're pretty lazy, and they'll fly to get over stuff if the girls are there. So when we clipped the Muscovy's wings, we only clipped the females because wrestling adult Muscovy's was tough. Uh, it really was. Uh, uh, Drake Muscovy's are big, strong birds, and they, their claws, you've got to be careful with Muscovy's, they can open you up. Um, so we just clipped the wings on all the females, and once the females stopped going over the fence, the male stayed with them. So that, that made it really easy. I don't have another solution for you. You're either going to have an enclosed fenced area with a hot wire, or you're going to put them in a coop. Um, I don't think you can probably justify the expense and whatnot of a livestock guardian dog just for a flock of muscovies. If you want one anyway, great. If not, then I don't think you can justify it. On that note, I want to let you guys know on my Duck Chronicles Season 4, where we've stepped into being homestead duck owners instead of commercial duck owners now, we have our little flock of 10 rowan ducks. And I think I've put out 16 episodes so far of Duck Chronicles Season 4 on the YouTube channel, and I put out Episode 16 today. That's why I know it's 16. And um, it was to show you guys my scaled-down sunflower sprouter. So I'm making sprouts for the ducks just like I used to in a scaled-down version. But what happened at the beginning of it, which was really cool, is exactly this predator situation. So I have taught my dog Charlie that any large bird is a bad bird. Because it could be a, her a heron, like a blue heron that wants to eat the fish out of my garden ponds. 
Or it could be a hawk that wants to eat my ducks or my little chickens. So I want those birds chased away. I don't really think it's easy to teach a dog, okay, that's a hawk, that's a heron, they're bad birds, and that's a big crow, that's a good bird. They don't really know. So basically to them, when they see little robins and stuff bobbing around and cardinals and blue, they just ignore those. But any big bird is a bad bird. And I can get Charlie keyed up immediately just by going, Charlie, bad bird. And he's like looking at the sky all angry. <sighs> and I brought Lucy in a couple of years ago off the street, and we worked really a lot with her on her training about sitting, staying, control so she wouldn't hurt the livestock. But other than that, I really didn't do a lot of work training her. I let Charlie do the job. So one of the th other things that the dogs are trained to do, you don't get in my front gate unless I let you in. They will, they will bite you. It's not a, it's not a bluff. And uh, Charlie has been like Cujo at the gate when people are there for years. Well, you know, now I look out, and Charlie's sitting in the shade watching, with his, you know, just kind of sitting there observing, and Lucy's doing the Cujo thing at the gate, even though she's half his size. And the Amazon delivery person is reading the sign that says dogs will bite. I'm looking at the dog and thinking about maybe I could just open the gate and just put the crap down, dummy. I even have a permanent note on my Amazon delivery thing now, like, do not come in my gate. My dogs will bite you. They will eat your face. But Lucy learned that from Charlie. So I got to see Lucy, in, and I got her on camera in perfect bad bird mode, and I have never trained her. I've reinforced the behavior, but I've never encouraged the behavior. Charlie trained her, and you see my ducks, and they come walking up, and they're just kind of wandering. All of a sudden, they, you can tell they kind of get freaked out, and they run for cover. And about two seconds after that, you see Lucy blowing in, and she's up like a coonhound on the power pole in my backyard barking, and I go out to see what it is, and it's a turkey vulture. It's not going to hurt anything, but again, it's a bad bird because it's big. And when that thing leaves, she chases it all the way to the back fence and then comes back, and she's all proud of herself. And that's one dog training another. So I am, again, reiterating, dogs do deter predators, just overnight predator deterrence. You got to really make that for yourself. Anyway, that is on the blog if you want to see that video. It's pretty cool. Last one of the day. Uh, this comes from Cody. Cody says, what are your thoughts on a potential for a quasi-Libertyville based on your recent conversations about small-town economic and population growth? I have listened to a few episodes where you're talking about the various ways small towns can attract people and attract businesses on a sustainable level to keep the, the small town feel while also attracting younger generations and retaining younger people. This helps support the local economy and in turn provides growth. I was wondering if some of these tactics and concepts, if it would be possible to turn a small town or, or county into sort of a maven for liberty-leaning folks. I confess I'm not even an amateur at anything political or even know my, around, know my way around various laws, but intuitively I would think a smaller town or conglomerate of towns within a county decided that they were going to do away with pointless laws and regulations that you could almost be left alone with the best possible outcome with our current system. Even if you don't do away with them, if you had a town with a few uh, of the larger businesses decide to market the whole town as a place where like-minded people live and do business, I would think you could create a type of micro-ecosystem within a system that allowed citizens a bigger say on laws, regs, affecting them. And there's your problem. <laughs> as soon as you have a form of government... The people that are most attracted to, to be in that government are the people that want to control other people. Uh, the, the closest thing to this is the Free State Project in New Hampshire, where they've targeted the entire state. There's a lot of good reasons for uh, New Hampshire being chosen. I won't go into them, but let's just say the way the government works there, it's probably the easiest place to enter, you know, to change with 10, 20,000 people. And they've done a good job with it. 
That said, the whole idea was they were going to get 20,000 people to move to New Hampshire. 20,000 people in a nation of 3 million is not that many. And they finally did get enough people to pledge, or it's 10,000. They finally got enough people to pledge to do it, and a lot of them never did because it took over 10 years for that to happen. And maybe it was 20. I don't remember which one. And so a lot of people that signed the pledge, because what it was is you could move right away, but you could sign the pledge and say, hey, when we get 20,000 signatures, then I'll move. Well, if you did that in the first year and 10 years of your life goes by, you're probably in a different place at that point. You may not be uh, so so keyed up on it. That said, they've done more for liberty in the last 10, 15 years than any I think any other organization in our country has done. And they have they have radically shifted New Hampshire to be more liberty like. And it still has a bunch of laws and regulations and things like that. The issue with your idea, Cody, is that government is good at pushing down but not up. So if we created a town, we'll call it Jack and Codyville, and uh, we decide we're going to have as little regulations as possible. Will all of the county regulations still apply? All of the state's regulations still apply? Um, what you're looking for is unincorporated land in a county. And in a county that pretty much leaves you alone. That already exists. That's easier to find. I like the idea in general, but every single person that has heard the siren song of liberty, that has, has really understood libertarian philosophy, has thought about putting some kind of community together, me included, it is way more difficult in practice than it is in, in principle. The... The thing that you may be able to make work if you can get people together is more of a neighborhood. See, I think you'd look at that and say, well, you know, neighborhoods generally don't have any government unless they're HOAs, and you hate HOAs. Absolutely. I don't want anything to do with an HOA. Uh, HOAs are for people who are like, you know what? Um, my problem is I just don't have enough government in my life, and I would like another layer of government in my life. So let's see if we can do that. Can we come up with another layer of government to be involved in our lives? No, I'm not about that. I want nothing to do with that. However, do you need to understand if you would ever be able to make this kind of like make a community for yourself work that the majority of problems that come from the state don't start with the state. They start with a person who turns another person in that makes a complaint about another person, etc. So if you find a, a, an area that in general is pretty lapsed with you know regulations about what you can and can't do with your life at your own property. Uh, so start out somewhere you're already moved in the right direction. And then you targeted a neighborhood that was ripe with being able to be rehabilitated. And you got people together to say, we'll all try to buy houses in the same neighborhood. You could still end up with a problem. But the more you put in there where you have people that basically just leave everybody alone... It would not be a say in government, but a lack of desire for government that might work for you. And there are you know, communities right now that are pretty downtrodden where you can buy houses for next to nothing. And the reason nobody wants them is because the neighborhood sucks. Well, if you go into one of these places and buy like an entire block or more than an entire block of houses, kind of what urban farming guys have tried to do in, in, in Kansas City, um, well, then the neighborhood doesn't suck anymore. So if you had a whole bunch of people that, let's say, could afford to put $150,000 into a house, but they can buy a house for $50,000 to rehab, 
And I've seen some situations where people have done things like this, like the guy moves in, he bought a house, he rented a room to a guy long enough until another house went up for sale, ended up being the house next door, he bought the house next door, now they live next door to each other. You know, they left their fences up, but they took the fence down that divided their two backyards, then somebody bought the one behind them, and they ended up with like four houses, two on one street, two on the other, but backed up to each other, and when they open their back door and walk out, they have a huge yard of shared area because they just took the fence, the cross fences down and left up the perimeter fences. And their goal was to move as many people in that, that neighborhood as possible and continue doing that. And I guess as long as everybody's pets get along or whatever, you know, and nobody's has, you know, good fences make good neighbors too. You know, you might, it might work better if the, the thing done was everybody, you put up chain link for cross links with gates for people to walk through. I have one of those with my neighbor right now. We have a gate that connects our two properties. Um, you know, that works well, but it keeps my dog from killing their little dog because uh, that's probably what would happen if they were not properly introduced. So I, I think there's there's potential for various ways for this to be done, but the, the problem is people don't want freedom. I hate to say that. Uh, on some level, it breaks my heart. But in general, I don't think people want freedom. I think people crave control. They don't so much crave being controlled, they crave the ability to control others who don't live the way they would choose to live. They just can't leave people alone, and it, it, it's it's a very sad thing. That's why I think we're we're you know so far away from a minarchy, let alone an anarchy, as a society, because people want to control others. I don't like what they're drinking. Well, don't drink it. Well, they're drinking it. It's bad for them. It's not your business. Well, sometimes it leads to, to bad behavior. Are they doing bad behavior? No, then shut up. Well, they're smoking pot. What, then you are they are they blowing in your face? No, then shut up. Well, those two people want to get married. They're both male. Do you want to marry one of them? No, then shut up. But we live in a world today where people are offended. Like we talked about earlier by a claymation reindeer. How far are we from a society where people leave each other alone? So I hate to be isolationist, but I think the move that I made is one of the best you can. You move to a place where there isn't a lot of authority over what you do to begin with. Your property is surrounded by a fence. The only people that have to come on it are the ones that you allow to come on it. There isn't much people can see about what you're doing anyway. And then when people don't see something, they don't bitch about it. That's, that's the solution I have right now. I would love to see this done in a way that works. I just have not seen it yet. If you get any ideas and you give it a shot, Cody, let me know. With that, we've come to the end of another episode of the show. Let me remind you real quick, you can help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That website, tspaz.com, just like it sounds, tspaz.com. Go there, you can see all my reviews on Amazon. You can just get over to Amazon to see the deals of the day. As long as you shop through my uh, site, tspaz.com, no matter what you end up buying, you do help support the show and the work that we do. I do have daily items reviewed for you. I'm bringing this one back again. It's actually two days short of one year for the last time I brought it around because it's a good item for Christmas time. But there's a lot of other stuff. It's made by one of my favorite technology companies that sells on Amazon, eTech City. Now, eTech City is a Chinese company, but they do things right. If something breaks, they fix it. If there's something not working, you tell them they send you a new one. That's the kind of company I want to recommend. With Amazon, you can always return things anyway. I don't think you'll return this. 
These are remote control electrical outlet switches. You get five of them for 30 bucks and two remote controls. The two remotes are identical, so if you lose one or you want to keep one in one place, one in another, they all do the same thing. Uh, if there's a critique on this, the outlets don't tell you what number they are. So they're numbered one through five, but they don't have any numbers on them. So what I did when I got mine, I went, okay, just so if I move these around, I know what's what. I just took one and plugged it into a wall, and I plugged an electronic device into it that would work if it was on. I hit the number one on, it didn't come on. I hit number two, it came on. Lights on. Okay, this one's number two. Just wrote on it with a Sharpie, two. Put the next one in. One, doesn't come on. Three, doesn't come on. Four, came on. Right, number four on it. And I'm all numbered one through five. If you buy multiples, they're the same. So you can have two number fives. Kind of cool, right? And so you have this little remote control, and it's very simple. One on, one off. That's all that it is. So you can plug stuff in, turn them on and off. So, for instance, I have a lamp in my living room, and it is a bitch to turn it on and off because of where it is. It's also the only good place for that lamp to be, and we kind of need a lamp there. I popped one of these things in, boom, it's on, it's off. That way I don't have to contort myself or whatever, because I'm not good at contortionists. Uh, so that's one example. Well, it's not an issue now, but my, my, my grandson, when he first started coming over, he was pretty little yet, couldn't reach the switch on the wall in the bathroom. And he would, well, i got to go to the bathroom. Well, go to the bathroom. I'm scared because it's dark. Turn the light on. Can't reach the, the light. Go in there with him and look at it and go, legitimately, he can't. I, I never thought of this. You know, when I became a father, my son was seven. So I put a light in there, showed him how the thing works. I need to go to the bathroom. Go, I'm scared. Here's your remote. Go turn your light on. Once you knew how to do it, it was kind of cool. Problem solved. I use it with my fish tanks to turn my lights on and off at night. Really should put timers on them. I had a timer on the one setup, and the timer flaked out, so I went back to these for now until I get another timer. Uh, but our big thing we use for this time of year, Christmas lights. My wife builds a Christmas forest. So she has this you know, pre-lit Christmas tree. It's like a normal you know, fake Christmas tree because she has this weird OCD problem with wires hanging. She goes nuts. Seriously. She's, it's an unhealthy thing. But it's her, so I bought the pre-lit tree. Well, then she found these little trees, like with like little snow on them, or like little trees for a few bucks that have pre-lit lights on them. And she found these tinselly ones, uh, and I got her like 50-string lights for those. And she tie-wrapped them all to the center pole so they're lit on the outside, but she doesn't see the wires, and it makes her happy. And she puts up like 30 trees in our living room, and it's beautiful. I should really put up a picture of it on Facebook. It's it's gorgeous what she does. I'm very proud of her for that, not so much for her desire to punch holes in the walls and cut people's heads off over a wire. I don't. It's like the one weird thing. Actually, we all have a weird thing, and it's her one weird thing. Uh, anyway, um, by the time this forest is built, like there's like you know multiple power strips going on and trying to get behind these things to turn this stuff off at night. Pfft. Set up you know two of these things for each main line of the thing, and when it's time to go to bed, off, off, boom, they all go off. There's just so much stuff you can do with these. And they're cheap, 30 bucks for six of them. Uh, they're bulletproof. It's basically a low-tech form of automation. You don't have to know how to program anything. You don't have to use any computer code, no apps. All you got to do is plug it in. you got an on-off remote. Uh, I don't know how long the dadgone batteries in the remotes last, but I've never put one in one yet, and I've had them for over two years. Um, as far as people that are like worried about Phantom Power Draw, these things um, pull something like... Um, let me see, I'm trying to right here, uh, a tenth of a watt in standby, 
uh, over a year, about $0.10 cents worth of electricity is how much one of these things uses. So uh, really, I think they're just a great buy and a great product. You need to check them out. E-Tech Wireless City Remote Control Electrical Outlet Switch. You can find them at tspaz.com. You find all my reviews by categories alphabetically there as well. Uh, just go to the Survival Podcast and scroll down if you're listening to this show today that it was published or within a couple days of when it was published, and you'll find the item. But uh, if you wanted to find all my stuff by E-Tech City, go to the site and type E-Tech City. E-T-E-C-K-C-I-T-Y in the search function of the website, and I'll find it to you that way. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up today. I know we're supposed to do a segment on uh, home dehyd... I'm sorry, home um, uh, freeze dryers, but the show went long. I'll do that. I mean, next feedback show, I promise I'll make you the lead story because I don't want to go too long with the show today. Let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is the kickoff of a week we're calling One Hit Wonder Week. These are people that had one number one hit and then kind of just disappeared. We're going all the way back to the 1960s today with a guy named Barry McGuire. The song is called Eve of Destruction. This song actually became number one because radio stations didn't want to play it. Because it was considered so anti-government. And, you know, anti-government is in vogue today, especially if it's anti-Republican. But anti-government was not in vogue in mainstream media in the 1960s. Um, you know, the media did not consider itself part of the counterculture in the 1960s. It was part of the primary culture. And uh, this song is in protest of many things. The, the coming Vietnam War, uh, the escalation in nuclear armament, um, the assassination of Kennedy was a heavy influence on this song. Um, But, you know, you look back at this time and you can see how most people would have just thought, you know, the average person would have thought a, a song like this was uh, just hippie bullshit. And you can look back now and you can hear the wisdom. And I also kind of dig the dude's voice. I'd never heard this song before, honestly. Um, I'm surprised, but I had. And I never heard of uh, Barry McGuire either. Uh, his voice is kind of like Neil Diamond and Bob Dylan had a baby? I don't know how to explain it, but it's a, it's a cool song, uh, and it invokes a lot of emotion and a lot of history. And again, I'm surprised I never saw, heard this song before. I uh, probably have in a movie or something. I'm sure it's been used in movies on Vietnam. It just didn't click for me uh, that I'd, I'd heard it before. Hope you enjoy it, and we will have more for you as we go through this week with One Hit Wonder Week. And that music will turn a little bit festive as we head deeper through uh, the month of December and toward our winter shutdown between Christmas Eve and New Year's Day. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The Eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill. But not for voting You don't believe in war Boards that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River has Bodies floating But you tell me Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? 
Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me. Sitting here, just contemplating. I can't twist the truth. It knows no regulation. Handful of senators don't pass legislation, and marches alone can't bring integration. When human respect is disintegrating, this whole crazy world is just too frustrating. And you tell me. China, then take a look around to Selma, Alabama. You may leave here for four days in space, but when you return, it's the same old place. The pounding of the drums, the pride and disgrace. You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace. Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to say grace and tell me. Yeah.